Welcome to Emerge, the health podcast for busy, high-performing women. Each week, we feature interviews, information, and inspiration that will motivate you to transform from overwhelmed, overworked, and overweight to vibrant, energetic, and on fire. My name is Dr. Alex Swenson-Ridley, selfless syndrome expert, board-certified women's health coach, and alternative medicine practitioner, wife, mom, and entrepreneur. I specialize in health for busy and driven women. Listen weekly as I share the tools, perspective, and knowledge you need to lose weight, boost your energy, and fall in love with yourself so that you can serve the world with an even bigger impact. Hello, welcome back to Emerge, the health podcast for busy, high-performing women. I'm really excited to be joined by my guest today. Her name is Lynn Bowman. She's the author of Brownies for Breakfast, which we're definitely going to talk about. It's a cookbook for diabetics and the people who love them. The book is a bestseller on Amazon with a five-star rating and rave reviews, and it's a cookbook you'll actually enjoy reading and using. Lynn has been featured at women's expos throughout the country, teaming up with actress Deirdre Hall to write and publish Deirdre Hall's Kitchen Close-Up in 2010 and Deirdre Hall's How Does She Do It in 2012. In previous lives, she's won national awards as a creative director for Silicon Valley Companies, as a creative director for E&J Gallo Winery, advertising manager at Redken Laboratories, and freelanced for agencies in San Jose, Los Angeles, and New York. She's also worked as an actress, makeup artist, screenwriter, illustrator, legal journalist, and television weather person. She has three grown children, two absolutely perfect grandchildren, maybe three now, and is the president of the, I can't say that word, Pescadero (laughs) Foundation. Pescadero, right. Pescadero, and she lives on a farm on Northern California. So Lynn, welcome to the show. I'm so happy to be with you, Dr. Alex. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. I'm excited to have you. And, you know, we were talking quite a bit before we started recording and I was like, we just need to record some of this, but um, I love to to start. And I think our listeners will really find a lot of value in just hearing some of your journey and your story, because you've obviously lived a lot of life and. Well, like many of us, I've, I've kind of lived a lot of lives. I, I mean, when we were starting out my generation, in the sixties, there was no plan. Uh, you know, we were just scrabbling to do whatever we could do and get whatever jobs we could get. And the idea of, of getting an education that had an end to it and a degree, and then we would do this and then there would be a plan and then we would climb. The no, no, no. Um, I, I like to remind people that in 1964, when I graduated from high school, uh, Harvard was not co-ed. You know, there were so many places that we were not welcome and we were legally not allowed as women um, to to go there. So, uh, and talking to you today takes me to, from the beginning of the story to the sort of recent, not end, I hope of the story, but my youngest is 43 years old. She just had a baby and she's a cancer survivor and the baby is spectacular and she's doing great. And her whole team was women. And I, you, I hope you gals appreciate, first of all, the brilliance that you bring to your practice that just wasn't there in the 60s, in the 70s. When I had my kids, you know, these guys would literally hand you the baby and go, okay, there you go, bye-bye. And now, you know, there are lactation consultants and all, and these women have had babies. They understand what babies are and what they do. And they've been up all night taking care of them and so on. So it's thrilling to go on this arc now with you, but starting uh, in my, I had my first full-time job in an advertising agency in 1966. So if you've seen any of those episodes of Mad Men, um, most Mm -hmm. of us have seen, okay, that was me. not, yep, 19 in the, in the pantyhose and the high heels and, the, you know, 1966. Um, and now here we are. Uh, and so much has changed. But one of the things that has not changed is crappy food. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's even crappier. <laughs> it's even crappier. And, and so I'm here with you, not as a medical expert and not as a chef. I'm here with someone who spent my professional life communicating 
and sometimes communicating about really challenging things. In the Silicon Valley, we, we were doing these things that nobody understood what the heck they were, let alone what they did. And my job was to explain in consumer language what a modem did and why you would want it or you know these other technologies. So now the challenge is we've got the research, we've got all you brilliant physicians out there and dietitians and all this stuff. And y'all have not made <laughs> any inroads. This is not personal, but mm -hmm. you are getting nowhere explaining to people that they're killing themselves with what they eat every day and they are damaging their children. Um, <laughs> granny buzzkill here, but it, we, we really need to turn this around. We, we have a sick nation, uh, something yeah. like, and you, you probably have a better grip on the statistics than I do, but it's 85% of Americans have some form of a chronic disease. They are, you know, obesity being shared among a lot of them, but not entirely. It's also, it's heart disease and diabetes and uh, kidney disease and a, a whole long list of uh, uh, things, colon disease. Uh, and these are almost entirely preventable and they are reversible and they are manageable just by stop, stop eating crap. And I make it sound really simple, but my message is, it is. It's not complicated. It's, it starts with a decision that people make, hopefully, and they decide that they are going to be healthy and they decide that their kids are going to be healthy. And how to do that is not, not hard. It's not a mystery. We know how to do that, but nobody's doing it. Yeah. And I have some thoughts and theories on, you know, why that is one is, and we talked a little bit about this, just, well, there's so many levels. There's so many places we could go with this, you know, oh my one goodness. is the yeah. food's addictive. Well, you know, another yeah. is we're up against this huge marketing giant of the food industry who markets yeah. to our kids and markets. People are making a ton of money, keeping you sick. Yeah. No, seriously, don't even get me started on cancer research, but we'll table yeah. that for another time. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You know, and then we've also got this dynamic of like our emotional ties and connections to food. And I think a lot of it goes Very back deep. like generationally, you know, I think you're in the same age bracket as my parents, actually, because I have parents who were older in life when they had kids. But, um, you know, there's stuff that like a lot has changed and shifted, I think, in terms of, you know, we don't really sit at the table anymore and there's there's stuff that's missing. But also like we have these things that connect us to the past. So that's like a bunch of lard and, you know, like whatever junk we were cooking with, which now it's even worse than, you know, back in the day when we just used plain old lard. Um, well, I, I talk a lot about that in this book because I think it's important to help you make this decision to understand how you got where you are. Mm -hmm. And um, all of this billions of dollars have been made playing on your emotions. And first of all, I want people to understand, and you're a doc, you know this, that, that when I use the word addiction, I don't mean that this is not a metaphor. This is absolutely an addiction. Sugar is highly addictive. It's more addictive than heroin. And there are other forms of sugar. There are lots of forms of sugar. Um, for example, if you're eating highly processed flour, wheat flour, it reacts in your body basically like sugar. Yep. And most folks today, moms, dad, people were driving through, people are not sitting down. And what do you get when you drive through? You get white bread or wheat bread that's basically white bread, but somebody said, oh, it's healthier if it's wheat. No, no, no. It's just, it's over-processed bread some kind of toxic meat product. And that's a whole separate thing. Where did that meat come from? What's in it and why? Okay, yeah. but whether it's a chicken patty or a yucky fish fried thing or uh, a beef patty, if you're driving through and getting it, it's toxic. Mm -hmm. And so you're eating that three times, four times a day now, or pizza. Yeah. And what is pizza? It's bad meat and bad bread and Dairy. Guess what the other one is? Dairy, which when people ask me, 
well, what's the first thing that I need to do? What's the number one thing that I should do to change my diet to make a big, big change? Well, number one, we've already talked about it, sugar. Mm-hmm. Like a hot rock. Now people say, well, how do you quit sugar? I'll tell you in the book. It's easy. It's wonderful. But number one, you, I want you the same way I would want you, if you were a heroin addict, I would have something to substitute for the heroin. And you know what those things are. I would get you into rehab and no more heroin. <laughs> how hard is that? No, just no. So sugar, that's how I would treat that. Just gone. And then the second one is dairy. Because unless you live in a place where you have a cow outside whose name you know, who you know what that cow has eaten and where that cow has been, and she is giving you some milk and you are drinking it. If that's the case, go ahead, eat some dairy. If you don't know the cow, where that dairy came from, then I'm sorry, no, just no. Because if you knew first how the cow felt, how the cow was treated, what is in that cow, the antibiotics, the the toxic crap that they give the animals to keep them on their feet. And, and then what they do between the cow and the store and all that comes with it. If you really thought deeply about it and you consider yourself sentient in some way, you'd quit. And you also would know what that substance is doing. Now, this is I know all your life you've been hearing milk makes a body strong, you know, and mm-hmm. milk and the, yeah, got milk. It's okay. If I had the money, maybe I'd do an advertising campaign that would go out and say, got poison. <laughs> I mean, that doesn't make it okay. No, that does not. Ma- and I was in the business, right? <laughs> I, I, I sold bad wine. <laughs> As part of my career, I won't mention any more names, but um, that's what the advertising business is all about, is selling you something without regard, absolutely, to whether that's a thing that you should have. You know, that that big new Buick, you know, here. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, it's crazy when we think about it. But that's where our food beliefs and habits have come from since the 50s, since TV. Well, and people don't like speaking of, of dairy and milk, people don't realize like the whole milk has calcium thing came from, it was a marketing ploy because it wasn't selling well. And you actually get far more calcium from eating leafy green vegetables and things like, yeah. And in fact, milk can be, can be destructive to your calcium. Um, So, so yeah, it's Michael Pollan said it, you know, eat, eat food, which Mm -hmm. Most of y'all are not doing eat food, uh, mostly plants. And then he says, not too much. And I argue that if you eat a whole food plant-based diet, mm-hmm. you can't eat too much. It's yeah. literally impossible to overeat. If you, if you remove the meat, if you remove the sugar, if you remove the overprocessed toxic flour and crap. Mm-hmm. And of course, people listening are going, well, so what does that leave? What does that leave? Yeah. <laughs> and we'll talk about that. But that just gives you a sense of, right, okay, you're going to take all that out of your diet. Um, but what you're replacing it with is nutrient dense food. So when you eat my donut from the book, yes, there are donuts, brownies, cakes, pies, um, my pumpkin pie is killer, by the way. It's just, I mean, in a good way. <laughs> Unlike your pumpkin pie folks, the advertisers. Um, so if you are eating my donut, it's made of pumpkin and nut butter. And uh, there's a chocolate one that's got cocoa in it. But the, there's a pumpkin spice that, that has spices in it. It's nutrient dense. Everything about that donut nourishes you actually feeds you or your kid, including there's frosting that is a pink frosting with little sugar-free sprinkles. If you want, you can have all that, Mm -hmm. but it's nutrient dense. So when you eat two of those donuts, you go, okay, thanks. That was great. 
That's all you need. And it's important that we understand that the food that you're eating now at 11 o'clock in front of the tube, you're watching um, Bridgerton or whatever, and you've got your bag of Doritos or, you know, um, that food was engineered to addict you. It was engineered so that you literally can't eat just one. Yeah. It's addictive, that word again. But also there's a, there's a response in your body that is not a healthy food response. It's a response to something in the little mice. And it's all been proven that science is all out there that just makes you want more. Mm -hmm. It's not feeding you. It's not feeding you. So what's going to happen when you change the way you eat is your body will adjust very happily to being fed. It will like being fed. People always ask me, well, what about your cravings? You know, don't you crave sugar or pork chops? Um, and I mean, in my life, I've eaten a lot of pork chops. <laughs> Over, you know, when you add up all those years, I yeah. loved pork chops, but I can't eat them anymore because what happens, and we can argue this if you like from a medical standpoint, but in, in my reading, it's my understanding that the chemical composition of your saliva actually changes. Mm -hmm. Your hormones change. Yep. So your cravings change. You actually want different foods than you used to want. So it's just like that heroin addict. You have to go through a withdrawal. You know, mm -hmm. you go through a couple of weeks of, wow, this is crazy, you know, but your body wants to be healthy and it yeah. will work with you. And um, sure enough, pretty soon you're craving arugula. Arugula is so <laughs> That's not good. A joke. <laughs> I have been there. I have craved arugula. Like that is my favorite thing to have for breakfast, actually. Me too. I love it. I yeah, it's delicious. And we have a yard full of it. It's cheap or free because it just reseeds itself. Mm -hmm. uh, and you can go out and get a handful fresh, and there you go. Which and we have to talk about how much food costs. Now, mm -hmm. um, and I want people to understand that when they're driving through, it seems cheap in some ways, but it's costing you a fortune in many yeah. ways. Yeah. Because so. you end up with health issues. You know, I, one of the statistics is 90% of the things that take people to the doctors these days is treatable by lifestyle, but instead Absolutely. we're ending up on drugs or having surgery or more uh, and more and more. Uh, if we were just willing to make some dietary changes and, right. you know, I live in a, so, and I don't know, how old were you when you started your journey with food? Like, has it been in the later part of life or did you, did you come to come <laughs> always, to your realizations early? I always loved to eat Dr. Alex. <laughs> I was, I was a kid at the table saying, give me that. <laughs> yeah, I want more. Uh, I love to eat. And I, and I learned to cook as a child, which people my age typically did, you know, yeah. we, we were part of the kitchen crew. Right. Um, but a, a, a life-changing event in, in my life was that my mother died when I was 18 mm. of a chronic disease. Yeah. So as happens, you know, that's, that's a life forming thing that some of us go through later on, in life. And some of us go through early in life. In my case, I, I saw up close and personal what losing someone to a chronic disease looks like, the deterioration over years and the cost to a family of losing a family member young. She was 46 and beautiful and brilliant and, um, you know, shouldn't have died, but she had kidney disease. And in that time, uh, dialysis was very experimental. She couldn't, there was nothing that could save her. Mm -hmm. So I, I also saw that that meant that the family was bankrupt. Mm -hmm. That's another thing that happens to us that we don't think about with chronic disease, especially in the United States. Yeah. We have to pay for it out of our pocket and yeah. none of us can afford that. And we don't want to be paying that as a community, as a society for our friends and neighbors. Um, we shouldn't have to bear that cost all of us. It's too much. It's, uh, it's, I don't know what's the word for it. It's epidemic. 
is the word, um, yeah. because it is epidemic. But so I understood that very young. And then I walked, I went out into the world and it was the sixties and I was a hipster and, you know, we all were wearing calico and feathers and, and have little gardens and things. And we were going to have our babies out in the field and then tuck them under our arm and go back to work. And so I'm like, that's BS, right? That, that happens like never. Um, but I was so idealistic. We were, you know, we were going to stop the war and peace and love and change the world and, and um, so I started having children in 1975. My son was born. Mm-hmm. And I was told that I had had in my pregnancy, I, was, I gained 60 pounds and he was 10 pounds when he was born. So the male doctors said to me, oh, you probably had gestational diabetes. And so you need to look out for that when you're in your 40s, which seemed an eternity away at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but decade later or so, uh, I started asking, should I be tested? And no, 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 you're young and you're not overweight particularly. And, you know, you're fine. Don't worry about it. Because diabetes is asymptomatic. Until you're really severely ill, you don't have symptoms. It's a sneaky, silent, internal thing that's happening to you. So I finally got someone to give me a test in my 40s. And sure enough, I was like creeping over into what at the time was understood to be uh, numbers that weren't good. And and so going back to the issue with my mother, I just, I deep in my soul was determined to stay not only alive, but strong and well. I had three little ones and I was going to be there for them. So that meant I... I had to do what I had to do. And I went out looking for information about what to do. What do I eat? What don't I eat? What? Uh, and the American Diabetic Association information, and again, I'm a professional communicator. That was what I did for my living. I'm reading this stuff going, the hell? This is such crap. Oh, crap. What is this? And of course, now we understand that that was drug companies talking and... Um, Docs who were trained in a lot of things, but not food, not, yeah. not table culture, not, ha- you know, and not communication either. No. <laughs> no. In fact, I think I might mention this, in the, I don't know, I've talked about it, but, but one of the statistics I found that was interesting was that something like 15% of the people who walk out of a doctor's office have any memory or understanding of what was just said. Mm-hmm. Okay. So do the math. <laughs> That's a lot of people who, who go, what was that? What am I going to do? Because when you're stressed, particularly, you know, uh, um, and that's why you should always have someone with you when mm-hmm. you, when there's anything serious, particularly going on, or your elders need to have someone with them at the doctor's office, because you walk out and you don't know what they said. You, and, and even if they said it beautifully and clearly, which Excuse me, Dr. Alex, but <laughs> I pride myself on not being like other doctors. <laughs> okay. I love that, you know, um, good, good. And I, and I'm sexist about, I think women are a little better than men about it uh, because men are culturally are kind of not great at communicating feelings. Yeah. <laughs> are they? <laughs> not at all. Not at all. And if you're seeing, a physician, a healer, you got some feelings, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, there's some feelings that are going to be involved. So, uh, so you're asking about my story and the feeling thing makes me think of one more about why I finished the book. Cause it took me about three years to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it was a journey in a number of ways, but my youngest daughter who just had the baby, um, who's a cancer survivor, age 43, mm-hmm. She's a phys- she is a nurse practitioner, a hospitalist. Mm-hmm. She called me one afternoon and said, Ma, <laughs> we do this a lot. <laughs> She's in her car or whatever. She said, I just checked a guy in today and he's about your age and he's a vet. And he's here losing his legs mm-hmm. because he's diabetic. Mm-hmm. And she said, so I've got you on my mind. So I'm just going to tell you this. I told him that you were writing this book. I sat down with him and I said, yeah, my mom is writing a book about 
diabetes and how to beat it and how to live well with it. And she's writing it because she says it's the book that she didn't have, that she wishes someone had handed to her. And she said, this guy got tears in his eyes and took hold of my hands and said, please ask her for me to finish the book. Please finish the book. So how could I say no? How could I not finish uh, the book? I did. Um, And you know, it, it's it's not a money making proposition, believe me. But mm-hmm. it's if it does save one or two people, the anguish of the deterioration that takes place in your life when you don't deal with this disease or heart disease, but particularly diabetes is just cruel. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's <clears throat> ugly in its more serious stages. It gets real ugly. Um, so, yeah, and it's just about moving your buns a little bit and eating smart, eating thoughtfully. Absolutely. And I was going to share, you know, it's somewhat, I think it's increasing, like 60% of the population is what's called insulin resistant. And That's so it. for those that are, you know, listening, they're like, well, I don't know if diabetes really applies to me. Like most of us are moving in that direction. And it's yes. because of our food quality, there's sugar and absolutely everything. It's hidden in all the stuff. Everything. You know, one of the things I have my clients come off of sugar and a lot of them, I think because I started my journey so young, I was 20 when I changed my diet radically and, you know, healed a lot, like overcame asthma and a bunch of, you know, my own health issues through that. Yeah. But I think I get stuck in like a lot of people don't know <laughs> what I've learned. Cause I'm like, Oh, I've known this for so long. Like everyone has to know it by now, don't they? And they yeah. don't. And so, you know, people are surprised like, oh, there's sugar in my spaghetti sauce or my, you know, yeah. my salsa or this thing that's everything. That. everything. And then all the stuff that's labeled as sugar-free has got Splenda and, you know, a bunch of other sucralose and just all these hidden things that are even sweeter and spike your insulin even worse um, and still lead you in that direction. So in the book, I, I talk, I have two or three pages about how to read a label and what it means. And uh, one of the things that I discovered that was a surprise to me, I just had never thought about it, is that those nutritional profiles that you see on a label that says this much protein and this much salt, and so, they're all wrong. You know, they're, they don't mean anything. <laughs> they don't really mean anything. It's the food industry's way of saying, okay, here you go, honey. Yeah. yeah. You're fine. It can be something of a guide if you are looking, for example, is there some protein in this? Yeah, that will help you know that. Um, Is there a lot of salt in this? Yes, you have to put the salt on the label and it is added. And that's why they're going to have an actual number. But there is no accuracy to those numbers. And, And the illustration would be, I've got two carrots. These two carrots were two different seeds, two different kinds of plants, raised in two different kinds of soil for different lengths of time, are they going to have the same nutritional profile? No, it can be eight to 10 times different, even for a carrot. But guess what? It's a freaking carrot. Eat it. It's okay. (laughs) Okay. It's fine. As long as it is actual real food, whole Mm -hmm. food, you don't have to worry. And people ask me, and probably you too. Do you? Ma- I don't measure what I eat. Mm-mm. I don't count calories. I, I don't journal about what I eat. I just make sure I eat good, actual food all the yeah. time. That's what I eat. Yeah. Uh, uh, and do I, what do I cheat on? Well, I will, I have been known to eat a Trader Joe uh, whole grain corn chip more than once. It's only got like three ingredients. It's corn and salt and oil. And that's all that's in it. Um, It's not the best food in the world, Mm -hmm. but I'm not asking you to be uh, a a Benedictine monk about this. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm just asking you not to be stupid. Yeah. Uh, Not to be a victim of advertising or uh, of the food company's agenda have your own agenda about food, which is being healthier and happier and spending less money. And I also talk a lot in the book because I just couldn't help myself about the fact that food isn't just food. Food is connection. Food is ritual. Food is 
family and love and friends and and tradition and all these other emotional things wrapped up in one. And so it's no wonder we've got this kind of disjointed, crazy relationship going on now with food. We've disrupted our food ways in a serious, serious disruption. And so I'm very interested in having us look at that and think about that. And and when you bring back the quality of your food, I'm hoping you'll think about the the quality of your relationships around Mm -hmm. food, your family. What's I mean, yes, I was brought up sitting around a table using utensils and a napkin and a big part of whatever I absorbed in mine. Yes. I actually grew up in Pasadena, California. I'm that lady, the the little lady from Pasadena, but um, we, we grew up understanding and our parents understood that what we were learning at the table was maybe the most important thing we would ever know. It was how to make a case for ourselves how to share, how to, I mean, it's this long list of things that you only learn. It's a, it's your cultural incubation. It's how to be part of group, how to be part of a family, a tribe, a clan, a friends. And how do your children, the age that yours are, Dr. Alex, how do they go out into the world to work, to go for their higher quote unquote education without understanding how to walk into a room, how to be received, how to greet someone, how to sit down with someone, how to share food with someone, how to feel confident and happy and comfortable in a social setting at a table. How do they do that if you have not taught them at all? No, it's very true. And I was just actually thinking back to like, I've over time learned French and German and lived in Vienna, Austria for a while. But like one of the main things you learn when learning a foreign language or about another culture is how to eat at the table because exactly. different cultures have, have different, yes. you know, things like yes. in Vienna, you, you own, you don't switch hands. Like here we'll switch you know, hands that we cut with and they don't do that. And they always keep their hands on the, on the table, or they think you're doing something dirty or, you know, <laughs> underneath. That's, like, actually that's fairly common. And yeah. Know, yeah. Um, and you're making a great point. It's such an education to go and eat with people who are different from you. Yeah. But still you're going to find that in most places, except perhaps Bedouin desert and some other places where you might be sitting on a carpet on the floor, In most places, you're going to be at a table and there will be implements. And it's your task to learn how to use those implements and share with those implements because it's the most basic human exchange. Yeah. That's how how can you be in government? And, you know, I found myself joking about this with people, but how can you elect a, a representative who's never been up all night with a baby? (laughs) <laughs> who, who, who's never changed a diaper, mm-hmm. who, I, who's never had to make a meal out of scotch tape and, you know, three carrots and whatever is in the fridge. If you don't have that cultural understanding, how can you pretend to lead a nation or a state or a county? And, and, and that's really the thing we're all trying to do. We're just trying to survive. We're trying to have our kids live. And we're trying to stay healthy. And and so we have a responsibility, too, to see that we are led by people who get it. Mm -hmm. If you've been waited on all your life, um, and some of my life I have been waited on, that's Mm -hmm. a different story for a different day. (laughs) uh, And I love being waited on. uh, But if you don't understand life at the table, in its different kind of what forms, what do you understand? It's a thing. And and we're all, except me, driving through. Everybody's driving through, not just once, but several times a day, very often. And the statistics, you've seen them. The statistics are are horrifying. And another thing that people are not aware that they're doing, I think, is that you're carrying your frappuccino around all day and you are putting sugar against your gums and your teeth all day. 
and your kids are sucking on these things all day. And the dentists are screaming. The hygienists are screaming. Affluent people who've always had good dental care are now rotting their teeth out with frappuccinis. And it's not just a few. It's epidemic. And once your teeth are gone and you can kind of think, well, I can get, you know, those implants or whatever. Is that what you want? Is that what you really want to be totally? I'm totally bionic, by the way, but I don't think that's the way we should approach our health. I mean, you want to keep as many of your teeth and as much of your hair and skin as you can. So the last point, and we'll kind of wrap this up from, from here, but oh, no. you know, I know a lot of the, we could talk all day and I would totally we be could. Right a lot of the women who listen to the show and myself included, you know, we are busy. And so the, what drives the drive-through and all that is like, no one's has time to cook and to sit down at a table and, and all that. So I'm wondering what input you have for those of us listening, because I know it's possible and I do it. It is uh, possible. And first, I'm going back to, you have to make a decision, girl, about what's important. What is most important in your kids' lives, in your life? Is it more important for them to be studying Japanese and going to kickboxing and taking violin and playing baseball? Or is it more important? And you talk about high performance in women. And I like to say, you know, I was high performing girl before women could even do that. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I know, I know know what it costs you emotionally. And, but in my case, because we didn't have quite as much choice in all this, I just said to each of my kids, you get two things, two things. Each of you can choose two things, a physical thing and an intellectual thing. Mm -hmm. And I will support you in those things, but that's it. Two things. Mm -hmm. Um, And the choice was theirs. And what my kids ended up doing, much to my surprise, uh, my son kind of led the charge. He was the oldest. He said, I want to fence. I said, what? <laughs> Excuse me? Um, he said, I want, I want to learn fencing. Um, okay. Okay. So he was entrusted with find out where you can do that and who, you know, and so on. He came back. He found a studio in San Jose, which is where I was living at the time. Mm-hmm. It just happened to uh, Connie Yu, if you're listening out there, uh, the, the instructor remained a friend for life, fabulous woman. And I met these wonderful families. He loved it. His sisters dove in. They became fencers too. My youngest daughter ended up starting a fencing team at her college that she oh. went to because they didn't have one. But, and that, this is not going to work for everyone, but you have to put it back on your kids Here's our life. Here's how you can help make our life better. Our life, not just your life. I am not your servant. I'm your teacher. And so when the kid cooks, the kid eats. When the kid chooses their uh, activity, they participate in it. They, they put themselves in it. They value it. So I, if, you, if you're not thinking in those terms, I would ask you to think in those terms. Um, I, my kids all played soccer at one point, three different kids, three different teams, because they said that's what they wanted to do. And <laughs> at one point I said, how much do you love your soccer? Well, we don't love it. Okay, good. We're not doing it anymore because I didn't have time to do snack mom three different ways and uniform cleaning three different ways. And it was stuff that, that it wasn't age appropriate for them to be doing on their own. I would have had so many of these things were designed, by the way, by men for having the free labor of women. Mm-hmm. You know, my son, we discussed him scouting at one point and and I called and found out and, and they said, and so here's what you do as the mom, you sew on the uniform, the patches and so on, but he needs to have a man to come to the meeting with him. He needs to have a man. So it's like, thank you. Okay. (laughs) But but times have changed and we women have great news. We have these amazing careers now and we have these amazing educations now. And there are more of us in med school and more of us in law school, but you can't, if you're going to have kids, are you, are you 
saying that you are going to be less of a parent because you're a lawyer or a doctor or a, I hope not. I don't think so. I don't think that's what you want. But what goes out of the window, it's got to be something. Mm-hmm. And what I'm asking you is don't make it the kid's health. Don't make it their nutrition emotionally or food-wise, because that's a way of sharing you too. And they need you. They need to share you. I had so much terrible childcare, uh, you know, when I was <laughs> trying to deal with it. I mean, I've been there. I, it's hard. It's horrible. And then we very quickly go into political territory here where, okay, where do you get child care? And why can't we get child care? And why can't, you know, my daughter is now trying to nurse her new baby and she is in healthcare and there is no accommodation made for nursing mothers in healthcare settings. Or I beg, I'm, I'm thinking if you are an attorney, you're struggling too to pump your milk. You know, it's a full time job. Yeah. So we need to together strategize how let's do a seminar, Dr. Alex, because it's going to take all of us to re gear. We're still doing it the old way. We're still mm-hmm. doing it the guy way, uh, which yeah. is you, you leave work in the morning at seven or six with this, expensive briefcase and then you show up again at seven or eight at night and and then you start your family life no Mm -hmm. you know that's and i don't care if you're online i don't care if you're texting each other that's that's not going to work yeah so and something very unpopular Mm -hmm. what my kids have said interesting now that they're in their 40s their parents themselves two of them um what, you know, it's interesting to hear what your kids say worked as, mm-hmm. as, you know, you get your report card as a parent, you know, what did we love about having you as our mom and what did we hate, you know, what really mm-hmm. worked and what didn't. And I've been kind of surprised that the, what they say is our house was always orderly. Mm-hmm. We loved coming home to a house that was clean and that, that was peaceful, that had a sense of order. And I know what a struggle that is for so many. And, and that affects your food life too. And sitting down at the table because I don't have time for that. I can't do that. It means it all has to be cleaned up and so on. So ladies, I hired help. Um, I went without so much, but I hired the help that I needed in the house, not with the kids. Mm. I had help cleaning and cooking, but I did as much of the kids' stuff as I possibly could myself. I didn't want someone else raising my beloved little angels if I could possibly be there for a ball game or a ride somewhere or something. So that was where the trade-off came for me. Um, I I did I spent a lot of my money getting my floors clean, and and that was for me mm-hmm. a lot of it. But you talk about self-care. Mm-hmm. Ever think about how much self-care is involved with having somebody else clean your floor and vacuum your house and wipe the baseboards? Yeah. That is huge self-care, I think. Oh, it is. I I have that luxury. I will. I mean, it's, it's not really like, you know, we all spend money on massage or on our nails or on stuff, but I think like on a deeper level, that kind of self-care of having someone else come in and clean for you. Like I I have somebody, we have a three-story house and I'm not cleaning that with four boys. Heck no. And I've got wrist issues. I'm just like, screw that. So, yeah. you know, every two weeks like, and I'm, I'm there and I like read and I, you know, used to feel bad about that while she's cleaning, but I'm like, no, like this is helping her and it's helping me. And there you go. And, and we, we all struggle with that guilt that is imbued in us culturally, that if you're not doing this all well, you know, just no, Um, no. I used to walk with my kids after dinner Um, and uh, I have happy memories of that. Mm -hmm. And what's wrong with that? You know? Uh, So I did some cleaning too and uh, organizing and so on, but I always had good help. And we were a team 
whoever I hired, I respected and admired them. Uh, if someone ever came after me <laughs> politically for, did you pay, did that person pay the taxes? You know what? No, because that's another thing that is not built in our system. Mm -hmm. We don't have respect legally or culturally for the people who clean our bathrooms. Mm -hmm. And, and we need to do that. And, and that, and here we are, we're talking about food, right. And health, but it's all part of the same thing. Um, and we don't have respect for women who breastfeed still. What is that about? Um, I can go on a total soap tangent box about that, but I was going to share in that conversation for my listeners and any, you know, anyone new, I interviewed a woman who's in corporate. She's a vice president and an attorney. And she told the story about she was actually pumping well in front of a room of a hundred people yeah. <laughs> giving a talk. And like, she just created that culture inside of her workplace. And like, I don't think anyone really knew that she, she had some quiet pump or something, but like, that's the kind of stuff we have to just lead the charge with. Yes. You know, I owned a business. I worked long hours. I had a nanny and I, I re finally reached a point where I was like, I don't like other people raising my kid, but he breastfed till he was two and a half. Cause I just. You made it happen. for three hours and like we napped and did feeding time and, you right. know, hung out. You made whatever. it happen, but we have not made it easy. No. Or, and, and so many women are still giving up on it. Um, understandably. Yeah. Because it's just too hard and it's okay for you. And I'm, I'm cheeky as I'll get out. I mean, you know, I was always a brawler and mm -hmm. would go to the mat, you know, whenever I needed to, um, for a cause you know, for, for yeah. my client or for a campaign <laughs> or whatever, but for those who are less outspoken, you know, we don't, we don't make allowances for the real stuff, food, babies, <laughs> families, that's the real stuff. Yeah. And I think, you know, just kind of in wrapping this full circle, I know for me, 2020 and even 2021, just with the crap we went through, lockdown, all of that, I think for a lot of people, it recentered some of our values and where maybe we haven't been putting enough effort, like in our relationships with our kids and in our eating and in our family time and our unit and how we address that. And so yeah, I'm happy to so, see that. I'm happy to yeah. see that. And, and the more affluent you are, the easier it is to not have relationships with your husband, your yeah. partner, your kids, whatever. It's, it's easier just to go your own way and text people when you need to yeah. communicate with them. Yeah. So if you're stuck in the same house, uh, the rules change. They do. Big yeah. time. Yeah. But yeah. I don't want anyone to have to live in a cubicle. No. Well, all right. And recapping and kind of bringing this full circle, you know, for those listening, we, we talked about food, don't eat crap, eat real food. <laughs> Sugar, dairy, gluten, wheat are the big ones. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think if we kind of couch the last bit of our conversation there, it's identifying the things that are really important Yes, and making those pillars. And then the rest of your life falls into that. But, you know, at some point we have to decide this is important and I'm going to make this happen. And then it all, you know, it all falls into place. So just one more word comes to my mind, Dr. Alex, that, and my kids have said this, they thanked me for letting them be feral in many ways. Hmm. And I think of myself as feral in many ways because I wasn't overparented and my kids had to be responsible for themselves. Yeah. In many ways, you know, they could cook, they could clean. I didn't do homework for them. Never. Yeah. I did try and make one of those missions out of sugar cubes one time and that went really <laughs> badly, really badly. But, um, but there's nothing wrong with a little wildness in a childhood um, or in an adulthood either. Uh, where women tend to be rule followers to the nth degree because we've struggled so hard to get to this high performance place where we are. But sometimes being feral is a superpower. It's okay. Yeah. And, and gift your kids that if you try, you can let them fail. That's such a hard concept for us. these it days. Is. <laughs> but it it's is. so important. There's so much to be learned there. Uh -huh. So Lynn, thank you so much just for sharing your, your knowledge and your wisdom. You know, I've had some other kind of women more in their later years in life, but I just love, you know, there's, and this is such a great platform to just have people come on and, and really share what you've learned. 
so fun to go across the generations whenever we can and our lives don't allow that enough i love it i i agree so real quick how can um people connect with you i'll put the link for your book in yeah the easy way is lynnbowman.com l-y-n-n-e B-O-W-M-A-N.com and connections are on there should be for everything. Cause I'm on Instagram and, and I'm being told I should be on TikTok, and I'm going, no, I, just, <laughs> I can't. I say you don't need another platform. Pick whatever one works for you. <laughs> so. Oh God. I love podcasting. This is so much fun being here with you in our uh, virtual room. So, but if you go on lynnbowman.com, everything is there. The book brownies for breakfast is on Amazon and you can get it in paperback or you can download it. You can get it hardback or you can go to your bookseller and say, I want that fabulous new book brownies for breakfast. And when they say, Oh, I I don't think we have it. You go, Oh my God. No, it's blowing up. It's huge. You need to get some. So it helps me. It helps get the book out there. If you go to your independent bookseller and they will order it for you, they can get it from their wholesaler. And I hope they'll order more than that. But by all means, go on my website, sign up on Lynn's list, and then I'll send you recipes too, um, because I'm always developing new stuff or or redoing old stuff in interesting ways. So I love having you on my my mail list if you're willing to do that. I don't maybe once a week, and that's it. And I'm not selling anything. I promise you, I'm giving uh, <laughs> recipes away. So I'm selling books, but. Um, the way I put it is it's like 30 or 40 bucks and you'll save yourself three, $400,000 in uh, health expenses. If you just yeah. read the book. So I think it's a bargain. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. And if our conversation's any indication, I'm guessing the book's pretty awesome. So <laughs> I'm going to definitely check it out after that. Thank you. Well, Lynn, thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to Emerge, the health podcast for busy, high-performing women, where we provide you with the tools, information, and inspiration you need to transform from overwhelmed, overworked, and overweight to vibrant, energetic, and on fire. If you enjoyed the show, please head over to iTunes to subscribe and also leave us a review. Also, I don't want to be working with you on your health only once or twice a week. I want to be in this conversation and in the trenches with you every single day. I invite you to join me in the Emergent Women Community Group on Facebook for the chance to interact with me live once a week and even more information, inspiration, and motivation to transform your health and become the vibrant, energetic, and on-fire version of yourself we all know is under there. Until next time, remember to keep putting yourself first so that you can better serve the ones you love and the things you are passionate about. Mm -hmm.